So hi there, thanks for joining me for another uh, live video. Uh, what I'm doing at the moment, as you might know, is uh, looking at the Atheism for Lent course. Uh, I've been running it for 20 years now, uh, maybe more. It was actually originally, um, uh, the idea was um, inspired directly by a book called Suspicion and Faith by Merrill Westphal, a philosopher. Uh, the subtitle of the book was Atheism for Lent. And uh, the way the book was structured was it was a way of looking at uh, Marx, Feuerbach, Freud, and Nietzsche um, as Lenten readings. So Merrill Westphal, is a, he's a very good philosopher, and he's a confessional um, conservative Christian as well. Uh, and um, he's a very good writer. He's got a book called Overcoming Onto Theology. That's, that's very good. Um, and after I read that book, uh, I taught it for a couple of years, and then I started to develop my own kind of form of atheism for Lent. Uh, and it's gone through many changes. In some years, I didn't run it. It's not that I've run it every year consistently, but I've kind of tried to develop it to what it is now. And um, I'm actually really pleased with the last couple of years and, and where we've got to with the material. And uh, uh, what, what I want to say about it. Oh, yeah. So originally it was really focused around those thinkers. And now those thinkers are a small part of kind of the wider program. Uh, if you haven't seen the previous uh, live videos, just go to my YouTube and you can kind of watch them there. Uh, I've looked at the standard critique of the existence of God. Then we've looked at the mystics. We've looked at then the kind of uh, materialist uh, critiques of uh, religion that kind of grew up in the 18th and 19th centuries. Uh, and I've briefly introduced the existential uh, response to those. Uh, in week six, we then come to the contemporary world. And this is where I kind of like selfishly maybe, and this is maybe the first time I've done this, um, is really directly connect this journey that we'll have been on with uh, one, the contemporary debate around theology and atheism, but more particularly around my own work. Um, so in some respects, this atheism for Lent journey uh, will help to uh, clear up and help to uh, deepen maybe an appreciation of where I'm coming from, the, the influences that have impacted me. Uh, and so it'll be uh, a way to kind of understand what I'm doing with pyrotheology. So although I won't be looking directly at my work as such in this week, I'll be looking at various thinkers that I've been influenced by, uh, a few thinkers who I think articulate uh, some of the, uh, you know, a very articulate position that um, I kind of basically agree with. <laughs> um, and it's, it's really, I see this week as drawing the whole course into a knot. This is where it will all hopefully start to become clear. I think if you're doing the course, you'll, you know, there'll be times where you'll feel lost and there'll be times where you feel right at home. But it's at this point in the course that I want it all to kind of start coming together. And ironically, what I want to look at this week is an idea that uh, atheism that is divorced from deep philosophy and from theology, uh, the problem is not that it's kind of too atheistic, but that it's not atheistic enough. 
that for atheism to truly um, expand and deepen again, because it has been there before, but it's kind of a bit superficial, I think, in many ways, some of the writers on atheism today, that in order to really get to the liberating core of atheism, uh, it requires theology. And that sounds like a weird claim to make. Uh, it's a claim that also Slavoj Žižek makes. Um, if you're into philosophy, you've probably read some of his works. Uh, and he's very much, as an atheist, um, arguing that theology is required in order to really delve into the liberating potential of, uh, of atheism. So how, how can you articulate that? What does that mean? Well, in a nutshell, what I want to look at is the idea that um, the problem that we face is not uh, at, a, at the level of conscious beliefs. So, you know, I might believe in some gods or some political ideas that are wrong. And if only I can get the right beliefs in my head, then everything will be better or will be okay. Um, this is a, an idea that has been popular at various times, but um, has been roundly critiqued because we discover that uh, we often want our own oppression. Often information doesn't help at all. Uh, just like, for example, you could point out why a prosperity church uh, doesn't work, right? You could have all of the data you want and you could show the data to somebody and it has relatively little effect. And for some people, that, that's a confusing thing. But, you know, think about it in terms of anxiety. It's the same thing, like you might have a real appreciation and understand why you feel anxious about going outside, but you still can't go outside. The knowledge doesn't really help that much. Uh, you can kind of know why you have trouble sleeping, but it doesn't stop you from having trouble sleeping. Uh, now, this, uh, this is why a lot of political theorists and a lot of uh, contemporary 20th century philosophers took an interest in uh, psychoanalytic theory, because in psychoanalysis, the bread and butter is really working out why do we not act in our own conscious interests? Why is it when we kind of, we know we shouldn't be going out with that person or we shouldn't be going for that job or, or something like that, why do we still do it? Uh, or we've got repetitive behavior and we know we shouldn't have that behavior. Like we know that it's not important that the house is completely immaculate but we're still enslaved by that desire. And, um, and so a political theorist turned to, to psychoanalytic theory to understand why we will often will our own oppression politically and culturally and religiously. And so in theology, theology at its best is a discipline or can be understood as a discipline that is not primarily about changing how you think, but is about changing how you are in the world. And so the problem is not to you know, stop believing that, say, Christianity is the answer that will give you wholeness and completeness and take away your anxiety. The problem is the idea of that in and of itself. So, for example, you can take one person off the throne, but you put someone else on. You may not believe that your religious background can give you wholeness and completeness, but you may turn around and try and find that in... Uh, money or in uh, a job or in a relationship. And so in a sense, the same desire for certainty and satisfaction uh, and 
remains within you. You've just potentially swapped over what you think can give you that. But uh, in pyrotheology, uh, the idea is that what we need to be freed from is this very tyranny of certainty and satisfaction, this very mode of being and thinking that we're caught within. And so in this week, I'm going to really unpack what that means, and I'm going to try and unpack what it looks like. Uh, the next week, we're going to have some concrete examples of how that looks like rituals that can help us actually, you know, experience this life that we're talking about, this freedom that we're talking about. But in week six, we're primarily interested in the theory. Uh, you know, what does it mean to, to be freed from obsessive desire for certainty and satisfaction and escape from suffering? And I want to look at a theology that really helps you face your suffering and that can help you live in the midst of uncertainty, unknowing, and to actually embrace a certain level of dissatisfaction. Um, this is very close to what Tillich and Bonhoeffer are talking about. So I feel it this week because it, it kind of like comes in the wake of us reading Bonhoeffer and Tillich. Uh, it will deepen the, what I read it yesterday, actually, this, this quote of Tillich's that about the God who arises after God disappears in the anxiety of doubt. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to like push that really far, even further than maybe Tillich would have been comfortable with. Um, and we're going to see how that in the very critique of meaning and certainty and a ground of reality, the very ability to not say that there's no ground, not to kind of say everything is meaningless, but to ask that honestly and to go, well, you know, we, we don't really know. And it, maybe that's a possibility. And then to, to enter into that, uh, which is called the death of God in philosophy. The death of God is a phrase that kind of means the, uh, the loss of a guarantor of meaning that the world is meaningful, a sense in which that is not a security that we have anymore in our lives. And that in the embrace of that, we actually get to the heart of a different form of life and a different understanding of God arises. And as we go into the death of God, we find uh, a different conception of God that transcends the general theist and atheist divides. And we find a Christianity that potentially has something powerful to speak to all of us, regardless of our, our, of our intellectual and conscious beliefs. Um, now, I'm aware that because I'm just doing this as an introduction, um, you probably have more questions and answers when you listen to this, unless you've been following my work. If you've been watching my seminars over the past year, this will probably be, uh, this won't be surprising at all. But um, I promise you that it will make more sense as you do the course. Um, that's my job is to kind of actually, you know, do, do kind of seminars that, that delve into what this actually means. But in a nutshell, the idea is that, that it's, it's a death and resurrection narrative, really, is that a certain way of being needs to die that is so natural to us. It's a way of being where we're always trying to get to something. 
we're always trying to get the answer, get satisfaction, get this, get that, get the other thing. There's this constant striving. Now, striving is not a bad thing, but it's when striving becomes everything um, that this, this is a destructive force in our lives and causes all sorts of violence and destruction. And that, that a theological atheism, a pyrotheological um, A-stroke theism, um, is designed to help free us from this frenetic pursuit. And uh, a word for this is grace, because grace is you don't have to do anything. You're not okay, and that's okay. Don't, because we're always going, you know, we, we, we're always trying to, we're, we're here and we want to get to here. We kind of live between who we are and who we'd like to be. We live in that space of the in-between and we don't like it. And we're often trying to find the next self-help book that will get us to where we'd like to be. But grace helps us to stop that pursuit of transformation. But ironically, by stopping the pursuit of transformation and just learning to bring to the surface in our culture, in our society, and in our individual selves, to bring to the surface the things that we'd rather not look at, that very act is itself transformative. So grace is this weirdly offensive thing where you stop the frenetic pursuit of transformation and you inhabit a space where you're able to be honest about the, the various ghosts that are within your family, your individual life, your community. You're able to bring those to the surface, to look at them. And in this very process of bringing the truth to light, the truth sets us free. Uh, so we're going to look at Todd McGowan is going to be uh, one of the reflections. Uh, we're going to have Shizek in there. I think there's going to be a little something from me as well. And we're going to try and, I'm going to try and articulate a view and a vision of Christianity that is not about what you believe, but about transforming how we exist within the world. Uh, it's basically what I try to do in the book, The Divine Magician. So, which, uh, so that, that's, I've got another book that I'm working on at the moment, which will kind of go into more depth. But what I'm arguing in The Divine, in the Divine Magician, I'm going to try to articulate um, in, a, in, a, in a clearer way in this week six of, uh, of Atheism for Lent. So I uh, hope that kind of at least gave you a taster of what to expect. I know it sounds weird when you say, well, atheism isn't atheistic enough because we often give up one belief system, but we take on another. And that sounds weird. But um, the, it, I actually have a lecture on this that you can get free online um, called The Last Guru. So if you're interested in this, you can, you can maybe go and find that. But it's kind of like an argument that we need not to convert to another religion. So you convert from Christianity and so you become an atheist or you become a Buddhist or you go from Buddhism to, uh, to Islam or Islam to Hinduism. But we need to convert from the very need to convert. That what we're doing is in conversion, it's always transparency. We're looking for the right answer. We're looking for the, the person who can look into our soul and give us the right answers. We're looking for someone just like the, the infant looks to the mother or maybe the father as a, a type of God who doesn't, who's not just an expert, but is actually a divine figure who seems to be able to know more about the infant's needs than the infant herself. Um, 
And so that very early idea continues to haunt us. So when we convert from one thing to another, we change everything we believe, but, but not the way that we believe it. The way we believe it feels the same. It has the same texture. Right? It has the same tendencies as, as before. So in one sense, everything has changed. And yet in another sense, absolutely nothing has changed. And in parotheology, the idea is, no, you don't need to convert from one thing to another. You don't convert to parotheology. Parotheology is freedom from conversion entirely. It is the conversion from conversion, which means we do not anymore feel the need to find some guru uh, or some belief system that will somehow answer all the questions. And we find an ability to embrace doubt, unknowing, and complexity. And in that embrace, we find a, a texture to life and a beauty to life and a sacredness to life that had eluded us before. So in, in other words, at first we think there's a sacred object, whether it's a religion or a political figure or a person. And then very gradually, this journey brings us to the idea that maybe the sacred is discovered in the texture of life itself, in the doubts and on the unknowing and the complexity. And this isn't some supernatural sacred. The sacred just names the, um, the experience of depth and, uh, and an ability to affirm life uh, and to be creative and creatively engage with life. And so that's, that's the move. So if, if, if atheism is in a sense, you know, yeah, you don't believe something anymore, then the tendency is, but we then can, can pick up something else. But actually, when we're freed from this frenetic pursuit, we get to the heart of the good news. Um, and that's why in the past I've said the good news is not that you can be whole and complete, but the good news is you can be freed from wholeness and completeness. The good news is that life is crap and we don't have the answers. <laughs> and it sounds like it's bad news at first. That's the funny thing. It sounds like good news when someone says, you can have the answers and have wholeness. It sounds like great news, but it turns out to be bad news, causing more anxiety, more repression, uh, more insecurity. But the bad news of life is difficult and we don't have the answers. When we enter into that and embrace that, and find a way to affirm life in the midst of that, we find it as profoundly good news. It's joyful. It's something that, that, that we can uh, embrace. Actually, um, I've just started a podcast uh, with my friend Elliot Morgan, and we put our first one up today. So if you go to The Fundamentalists on uh, iTunes or SoundCloud or whatever, you'll find us. Uh, the first episode is very simple. It's really just an introduction to who we are. But next week's episode is kind of on this subject. Uh, and we talk about the difference between enjoyment and pleasure. Uh, and um, it will cl it'll click into what I'm saying. So keep an eye out for that. That's also a little plug for the fundamentalists. Um, in a nutshell, pleasure is the name that we give to the satisfaction we get when we... Um, get something we want, like at Christmas, the pleasure of having something that you wanted. But enjoyment is a satisfaction we get from the anticipation, from the not having. And what tends to happen 
is we think that pleasure is what's important, like getting something, but that's actually only transitory. So if someone says you can have the answer, you can know everything, you can, ha you can have happiness, and we, we pursue something that will give us that, that is always momentary and passing, and it's, it's a, it's, you, can't, you can't hold it for any period of time. But actually, the enjoyment of life is found in the struggle and the not having and the questioning, just like a scientist is driven, not really by the answers, because as soon as they get the answer, they're like, okay, that was cool. I got some pleasure out of that, but now I want to get on to the next question, right? The, the enjoyment is in the, uh, is in the not having the answer. And this is what's wonderful about sports. Sports is a beautiful way, one of the few ways in our society that pleasure and enjoyment are uh, found together. So the pleasure is when your team wins. So it wins a Super Bowl or it wins a big game. That's pleasurable because you get the object, which is the win. Um, but the enjoyment is in your team struggling and losing and you being with your team through thick and thin and all of that. And if you just had the pleasure, i.e. if your team won every game, you'd find that your satisfaction dissipates because you would lose enjoyment. But if you had no pleasure, like your team never won, then that would become depressing as well. So life is, can, is between, like when you watch your sports teams, you're like the pleasure of the win and the enjoyment of the struggle. And they intertwine in an interesting way. And in the same way, parotheology explores the idea of a form of community, religious community, that has pleasure and enjoyment built into it. Not, by the way, individual. Like, I'm not really interested in individual happiness or anything like that. I think the more interested you are in happiness, the more unhappy you'll be. But as you give yourself to a cause, when you give yourself to a commitment to a community, to your neighbor, um, and you both get a satisfaction from the enjoyment, from the struggle, and also from the occasional wins whenever you see a real positive development in your society. Those two things come together in a good cause. But it's not about the this, this satisfaction of completeness. It's about a type of enjoyment and pleasure that comes from the struggle itself. And that's what parotheology invites us into. So there you go. That's, that's kind of the, the um, in a nutshell, what we're going to be doing in week six. I'm going to see if any of you have got some questions. Again, in fear and trembling, because I realize that I'm trying to say a lot in 15 minutes. <laughs> um, I'm probably trying to say way too much in 15 minutes. Let me see. Uh, Darlene says, our brains were made for attachment, belonging, relationships. How does one adopt parotheology without walking away from the permission to fall in love? That's interesting. Yeah, Darlene, interesting. In, psych in psychoanalytic theory, and um, Ferenzi was big on this, is that actually there's two dangers. Actually, that humans aren't made for attachment as such. That the first danger is too much detachment. If you have a child and you don't look after them and care for them, and if they hurt themselves, they'll come running to you and they'll hug you. And then when they feel better, they'll go right back into the world, right? So that's healthy. The child is out in the world. Um, he hurts himself or she hurts herself, comes in, gets a hug, and then leaves. So too much distance is really damaging to the child, but also is too much attachment. Over proximity of love, 
from say the primary caregiver from the mother say or the father is really detrimental as well and in fact can be more detrimental the third big problem is in families where the parents make the child feel that they're unhappy and the child has to become the the parent to the parents those are like three things that that seem to have a lot of empirical evidence to say that they're damaging to childhood development. Um, so again, what's interesting in that is it's the play between detachment, which is the child playing, attachment, when the child is, comes in, gets a hug, and the pleasure of that, and then going out into the world. That's the Fort Da game that you know, Freud famously talked about where the child throws a thing out and then brings it back and gets pleasure from throwing this object out and then bringing it back and throwing it out and bringing it back. And that's the play between um, enjoyment, which is you know, the, 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 the space, and pleasure, which is the connection. Um, whereas a lot of, I would say the problem with uh, a lot of uh, religion today and also kind of New Age and Gnosticism as well, is it's very attachment based. It's very much um, trying to uh, give you a kind of a oneness with the universe, a kind of like an oceanic experience of connection. Um, and I wanna try and argue and pace out how actually separation is the first important move of the infant. Um, otherwise psychosis results. So psychosis is the, is the lack of separation. Um, and that, that in an interesting way, separation is what's important. I mean, that's the, the, the purpose of the covenants. Um, people think covenants were designed to bring people together, but they were actually designed to keep you apart. Like when you have a contract, it's not designed to bring you close to somebody. It's designed to protect you from their desire. So like a, a business partner, you have a contract. So if they decide they do want to give you the money, they still have to do it because there's a contract. So the whole idea of covenants was to protect you from the desire of God, to separate you from the other's desire, which is obviously analogous to separation from the primary caregiver's desire, uh, which is uh, tremendously horrifying to the infant. Um, and so there is this, this interplay that I think is important for kind of health. Um, but anyway, we'll, we'll probably get into that in more detail in week six. Um, uh, Maria, if your team loses all the time, you may be addicted to losing. Absolutely, that's a very key thing. But here's the thing about being addicted to losing. Addiction to losing generally requires the occasional win to keep you addicted. So that's why gambling works. Um, you know, gamblers aren't addicted to winning, they're addicted to losing, but, but it's because then in losing, the win seems even better. So yeah. I think you're right, but I think even then, if your team loses every single time, I think it's, it, you, people will lose interest, just as if their team wins all the time. Like, if you have a team that you love, but it, it wins everything for like three years in a row, you'll be secretly happy when it loses. Not because you don't like your team, but because winning that much gives you momentary pleasure, but it robs you of enjoyment. And so unconsciously, maybe consciously, you'd be like, oh, my team lost after three years. But unconsciously, enjoyment is brought back onto the scene. And uh, that's going to be that's going to be nice. <laughs> um, 
Oh, that's good, Andrew. I love that. <laughs> they say you can play golf in hell, but every shot is a hole in one. I love that. I love that. I'm going to use that. Uh, that's brilliant. Um, I have a good joke that's similar to that, but um, I've never heard that saying, but that's perfect. That's a perfect analogy. Um, the book that I'm writing at the moment uses an episode of The Twilight Zone um, called A Nice Place to Visit, which plays on this. A guy basically goes into the afterlife and everything is perfect. And at first he thinks he's in heaven, but then he starts to go crazy and he realizes he's in hell. Really recommend you watch it. I've spoken on it as well. You'll probably find lectures on, on it for, by me, but it's called A Nice Place to Visit. Uh, and you can, you can see that. All right. Listen, guys, thank you so much for uh, listening to me rant and rave again. Um, as I say, we've started a podcast, me and my friend Elliot. Uh, check it out. Episode one is very chilled out. It's really just us introducing ourselves. We do talk about capitalism and desire, actually. <laughs> but the second episode is about pleasure and enjoyment. And um, I think, you know, we, we hit on some interesting themes. Uh, but it doesn't get too deep because we're sitting there drinking and uh, just having a laugh as well. So check it out. And um, for those of you who are starring Atheism for Lent, the website is up. The buttons are all working. So on the 14th, you'll get your first reflection and um, you'll get your first seminar from me on the, this Sunday. So hope you enjoy it. Take care. Bye-bye. Oh, I said bye-bye too quickly. I can't find the off button. Um, so now I can say to you, whatever you're doing, uh, wherever you are, I hope um, it's good, but not too good. I hope you're having pleasure, but also the enjoyment of struggle. Bye-bye.